Well, Lyle Arakai shares this insight. In Hawaii, because the time difference with the continental United States, the NFL Monday night football game is played in the mid-afternoon. So the local TV station delays its telecast until around 6.30 in the evening. When my favorite team plays, I'm too excited to wait for the television, so I'll listen to the game on the radio, which broadcasts it live. Then, because they're my favorite team, I watch the game on television, too. If I know my team has won the game, it influences how I watch it on television. If my team fumbles the ball or throws an interception, it's not a problem. I think that's bad, but it's okay. In the end, we will win. Knowing who wins totally changes the way you experience the game. What a difference it makes knowing who wins. What a difference it makes in dealing with all the ups and downs of the game, all all the challenges, if you already know who wins. Being assured of final victory gives one a whole new perspective on dealing with the challenges of the game. And beloved, so it is with us, right? We totally know who wins in the end. I know, are are there going to be setbacks? Yes. Are there going to be many fumbles and many interceptions and sacks coming our way? But we have a whole new perspective on dealing with them because we know who wins in the end. Romans 8 is a chapter of assurance, assuring us because we are in Christ that we win because Christ has secured the victory. It starts off with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. And now we come to the end of chapter 8. As we ascend the mountain peak of verses 35 through 39, we remember, we, we look back. Since God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Why? Because God graciously gives us all things. Who shall bring any charge against us, God's chosen family? No one. Why? Because it is God who justifies us. Who is to condemn us? No one. Why? Because Jesus Christ has completely saved us. We have seen over and over again, it's all about God's plan. It's all about the work of Christ, that we have such absolute assurance of his salvation in our lives. Now we come today to the final set of questions. And oh, what... What beauty, what comfort, what truth they teach us. So what I'd like to do today is for us to read together verses 35 through 39. And let's focus our gaze on this amazing vista of God's truth. So let's read together. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we have read your scriptures. Holy Spirit, you have given us this truth, and we pray now. To the glory of Jesus Christ, you would illumine the truth within us. You would teach us. And then, Lord, we would apply it and leave this building, leave our homes, go out into our lives more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. To his glory and to his love, we pray. Amen. Well, our passage today breaks down into two parts. The first is a list of all these potential separators in verses 35 through 36. And then second is this insurmountable conclusion in verses 37 through 39. Well, let's notice something first about the structure of our passage. The first three main questions were answered in four verses. And this last main question now, who shall separate us from the love of Christ is answered in five verses. So you have three questions in four verses. You have one question in five verses. You see Paul's emphasis here? You see Paul weighing the magnitude of this question as greater than the former? And know how the questions and answers of the former were so important and so helpful and encouraging to us. But who hasn't? sat in the quietness of their own brokenness and asked God, do you love me? What follower of Christ hasn't bowed their head in repentance again and wondered, God, do you still love me? I've been there. We've, we've all been there. When our failures flood our soul, when the challenges of life are getting us down, God, do you see me? God, do you love me? Those questions run deep, and those questions are real. And Paul knows that. And he wants to take the time to answer this question, and not just answer the question, but to overwhelmingly answer the question. Another important thing to point out here is that what we're talking about here is divine love. The question in verse 35 is about the love of Christ for us. The final answer in verse 39 is about the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We see Christ's love for us detailed for us in John 15, 9, and in many passages. In this passage, it says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And we see God's love for us taught in that amazing verse of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, for God so loved humanity, for God so loved you, for God so loved me, that he gave his one and only son. The love we're talking about here is the divine love of God, the divine love of Jesus for us, the magnificent, marvelous, matchless love of God. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So what is trying to get us to question? What is trying to get us to doubt? 
What is trying to get us to lose our confidence? What is trying to separate us from the surety that God loves us? Paul lists seven separators. These aren't the only things that are trying to to get us to lose our confidence in God's loves, but they do touch on big, challenging areas of our lives, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Tribulation. Tribulation is to be pressed down, to be pressed upon, to be oppressed, to be squeezed under pressure. Life has a way at times to make you feel like you're in a vice grip, right? And each turn just keeps turning up the pressure, squeezing you. That's the picture of tribulation. Distress has the idea of being confined, of being hemmed in. It's the feeling that everything's against me. Everything's against me. Distress. Persecution refers to the affliction suffered for the name of Christ. Sometimes it's not just the act of persecution, but even the fear or thought of persecution that can be hard. Persecution for Christ is part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Scripture verses, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John 15, 18 through 19. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad for his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Matthew 5, Jesus said, But to you I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 2 Corinthians twelve ten, Paul said, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. For the sake of Christ, he said, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Suffering on account of our connection to Christ. Suffering because we live our lives with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior is real. Like Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Like something strange has happened to you. No, it's not strange. No, it's not a surprise. It is to be expected. Persecution is trying to separate us from the love of Christ. Famine. Famine 
talks about being in physical need. This can be from the consequences of persecution, right? Persecution can lead to you losing your job, and the loss of income can lead to the loss of ability to purchase food, which then brings starvation and famine. Folks, right now throughout our world, this is happening to Christians all over the place. But for us, it might be helpful to broaden out the term to include all physical needs, like our health concerns. Our health issues press upon us, right? They make us feel like everything is against us. They try to stagger our confidence in the love of Christ. But next, he lists nakedness. Nakedness is not about just about not having clothes, but it's about being in material need, being destitute, being vulnerable, being unable to care for the material needs of your life, being in financial need, not having enough money to care for your needs. It's one of those things that, that happens in each of our lives and different times in our lives, and it is there to try to undermine our assurance and the love of Christ for us. Danger is peril. Your life is at risk. Your, risk, your future is in jeopardy. It, we have threats from people. You have threats from our life situations. You've put your life in danger, and it's, it's trying to pry open a separation between you and your surety and God's love. Sword is execution. This is the word for a dagger. A dagger that was often used by assassins. It's a symbol of death, sword. Folks, this is not some theoretical list from Paul. Now, this list was his real life experience as he lived out his faith. 2 Corinthians eleven, twenty-four through 28. Paul's words. Paul's life. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers and dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is not some theoretical list that Paul has put together. This was real. Such challenges were faced by so many in the early church. At the time of the writing of this letter to the Roman believers, in just a few short years, the great persecution, the horrific persecution, would come upon the Christians throughout the Roman Empire by Emperor Nero. It's not some theoretical list. It's our real challenges. Real challenges that even now today, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of our brothers and sisters, our family of God, are experiencing. We're now sure for us 
this list is not as harsh as it was for them and for many others. And you know what? We thank God for that. We recognize that as God's gift, his gracious gift to us. But it's not a theoretical list for us either. There is a cost for following Christ. There are real trials that come our way because we are Christ followers. Trials from within as we take up our cross daily to die to ourselves, to die to our selfishness as we follow Christ. And trials from without as we stand up strong, live out in our lives dedication to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The challenges for us isn't theoretical either. It's real. There are real things in our lives that are trying to get us to lose our confidence in God's love for us. There are real forces that are trying to separate us from the love of God. There are real circumstances from without. There are real fears from within that are trying to get us to question God's love for us. Well, as is Paul's tendency, as he makes this point, his instinct is to prove it, and he proves it by turning to the scriptures. Verse 36 is a quote from Psalm 44, 22. Paul says to his readers, this isn't something new. No, for millennia, followers of God have faced trials that have been aiming to take them down. There has always been and will always be opposition to God's people, to God's plan, and to God's work in this world. What was true in the Old Testament is now true for them in the New Testament and is still true for us today. But notice again in that quote there, that verse in verse 36. How does it start off? It says, for your sake. Well, who's the your in that sentence? If you go back to Psalm 44 and you read who the your is, who he's quoting, Psalm 44, the your is God. It is for God's sake. It is for his sake. It is for his purposes, the hardship, all of these things that push to separate us from the love of God are actually in our lives for his sake, to drive us to God, to drive us to his purpose in our lives. Now look with me at at one little word, one little word, but one important word there in verse 37. It says, no, in all these things, in in the very midst of all these types of hardships, in is where the rubber meets the road. There's nothing unusual about facing such challenges in our lives. We're not removed from them. We're not above them. No, we are in them. Suffering, tribulation is par for the course in the Christian life. And I don't point you to Paul for proof. I don't point you to the Old Testament, to the New Testament, for proof. I don't point you even to our own lives and stories that we could list over and over again for proof. All that could prove it. But I want to point you to Jesus Christ for proof. 
Our Savior went through all of these things and so much more. They weren't removed from him. They weren't distanced from him. He was in them. He wasn't detached from the sufferings and challenges of this life. No, Jesus Christ experienced all these things and nothing compares to what Jesus went through. Actually, Jesus taking the weight and the guilt and the sins of mankind upon himself, taking our just judgment, taking God's just wrath, being the sacrifice of atonement for us, doing exactly, perfectly the Father's will. Nothing compares to what Jesus went through. So have you ever thought that part of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, which is God's expressed purpose for our lives. Have you ever thought that part of it is enduring in the midst of all these things? That it's actually through the difficulties, it's actually while we're in the hardships of life that we are being conformed to the image of Christ Folks, there's nothing unusual about facing difficult life challenges. It's not a surprise. It's not strange. We are not removed from them. We are not above them. No, we are in them. And we are in them for his purposes and for his sake. We are in them to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ as these separators come to separate us from our assurance and the love of Christ, from separating us from our confidence in the plan of God, as true followers of Christ, what really happens? The exact opposite happens to us, right? God's love for us becomes so much more inseparably clear while we're in the midst in all of these things. What is meant to separate us from the love of Christ actually drives us deeper into the love of Christ to see the bountiful reality of God's love for us. As Paul now comes to his amazing and surmountable conclusion in verse 37, he declares, no, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Can you see it? What's trying to conquer us? what's trying to take us down, what's trying to destroy our surety in Christ, in God's love for us, cannot win. Because he loved us. He made us. What? More than conquerors. God's love for us conquers anyone and anything. All the potential separators of life are defeated in Jesus Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Oh, beloved, I think if, if we really believe this, if we could really understand this, If I could really live this out, what a difference it would make in our everyday life. More than conquerors. 
is actually just one word in the Greek. And it's used only here. It's a word that, that Paul has to make up to adequately describe our position in Christ. Paul adds the prefix huper, which comes across in our English language as hyper, to intensify, to amplify the word conqueror. So literally, Paul is saying that in all these things, we are hyper-conquerors. We are super-conquerors. We are overwhelming conquerors. We are supremely victorious. Of course, it's not us doing the conquering. It's only through him who loved us. He assures the victory. It's not because we are special or, or that we have some great power. No, it's only through him who loved us that we are more than conquerors. One said, in Christ, we don't conquer people in bloodbaths of fights, but we conquer trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. How much more strength does it take to conquer distress and persecution or peril than it does to beat someone up on a street corner? What's the key to hyper-conquerors through him who loved us? The means by which we conquer is not our own strength, but rather Christ gives the capacity to overcome. Another road, I love this quote, Christians are not grim stoics who manage to muddle through somehow. They are victors who have found from experience that God is ever-present in their trials and that the love of Christ will empower them to overcome all the obstacles of life. That's true. That's what Paul is telling us here in verse 38. He says, For I am sure, for I am confident, for I am persuaded. He has found from his own experience with surety that God is ever-present in his trials and that the love of Christ has empowered him to overcome all the obstacles of his life. He's sure. He's confident. He's persuaded. What encouragement, right? He's lived it, and he's sure. He has lived it, and he's convinced. It's not some false confidence. It's not some blind hope. Now, this is the truth. He's lived it out in his own life. He knows in the very depth of his being that there is nothing that can separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus his Lord. He has lived it, and he's sure. That, folks, is real encouragement to us. And as well encouraging to us is that there are many in our congregation who know this. There are many in our congregation who have lived this. And from the depth of their being, they know that there is nothing that can separate them from the love of God in their life. They've experienced his love, helping them overcome the challenges of their life. They have lived it and they know it. Remember the words of that great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? Horatio Spafford wrote that poem. 
as he was on board a ship to, to meet his wife in England. In, 17, in 1871, the great Chicago fire had brought him to financial ruin and his four-year-old son had died that same year. In a planned trip to England in 1873, his four daughters and his wife boarded a French ocean liner, the Ville du Havre. But at the last minute, Mr. Spafford had to stay back to finish some, some important work before he would catch a, a, another ship to, to meet them. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship sank rapidly after a collision with the sea vessel, the Loch Urn, and all four of Spafford's daughters died. His wife, Anna, survived and sent him a telegram. Saved alone, what shall I do? Well, as soon as possible, as Spafford traveled on to meet his grieving wife, he was inspired to write these powerful words as he passed near the very place where his daughters had died. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. But folks, there is something about this story that I only found out recently. Those are not the exact words that Horatio Spafford wrote. One word has been changed in that hymn to make it rhyme better. He didn't write, Thou hast taught me to say. He wrote, Thou hast taught me to know. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know. It is well. It is well with my soul. What a difference that simple word makes in the midst of the great brokenness of his life. God hadn't taught him to say it was well with his soul. God had taught him to know it was well with his soul. He knew it. He was sure. He was confident. He was persuaded. He knew. He knew in the very midst of his broken heart, in the very midst of his unimaginable loss, in the very midst of his tribulation and distress, he knew that nothing was able to separate him from the love of God and Christ Jesus his Lord. What a difference. Beloved, what Paul is getting at here is this, this is not some false confidence. This is not some blind hope. No, this is real. This is true. This is reality for the followers of God. He knows it. He has lived it. These words aren't the great hyperbole of a poet's dream. No, these words are cement of an apostle's reality. These words are the surety of a believer's wife. These words are the anchor for our souls, what was true for Paul is true for us. We know, for we are sure, for we are confident, 
For we know that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know what powerful words, what amazing truth. Paul soars on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he details for us just how inseparable God's love is for his children. He shows us the extent of God's love by showing us in the extremes. Now I saw this chart for verses 38 through 39, and I remade it because I think it helps us visually see how Paul is showing the insurmountable extremes of the immensity of God's love for us, right? Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither height nor depth, nor powers, nor anything else in all creation. Can you see it? The love of God spans all extremes. It is without parallel. It is without end. It is beyond comparison. It is more present and more powerful than anything, anything in this world and anything in the spirit world. Nothing earthly or created, nothing in our lives, past, present, or future, no spiritual forces, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, that is the truth we know. Well, the first comparison given there is neither death nor life. Death is the saddest reality of all. One of the hardest and deepest hurts we ever experience in this life is the death of a loved one. But remember in that list of those potential separators in verse 35, death is mentioned there too, but it's talked about as a sword. Death by persecution, death by assassination, death by sword. Even that most tragic of deaths is not outside of the love of God. Yes, even as we go through death, the grief of a loved one's passing, or yes, even our own death, death cannot separate us from the love of God. And neither can life. All the challenges of life, all the tribulations, all the distresses, all the frailty, all the losses, not one thing in this life can separate us from God's love. Neither angels nor demons. No angel could come up to God and say, you know, I think you might have overlooked this one. You know, just look how bad one of your children is. No demon could say, hey, I I think you might have overlooked this one. Just look how bad one of your children is. No, no, God says, I've overlooked nothing. This is my child, and I love them. Neither the present nor the future. Time has no bearing on God's love. God's love is timeless. God's love is eternal. As God is, so is his love, never-ending Before the beginning and after the end, God's love is still there. Because God is sovereign over time. 
Well, next is height nor depth. God's love is not just greater than time, it's greater than space. One of the greatest heights we know is the furthest star discovered to date, which is 9 billion light years away. Officially, the star's name is Max J1149 plus 2223 Lens Star 1. But the astronomers call it Icarus. The greatest height we know. The deepest depth we know on the earth lies in the Pacific Ocean, in the Marianas Trench, 35,814 feet below sea level. Over a mile deeper than Mount Everest is tall. Its bottom is called the Challenger Deep. So if it were possible to stand on the star Icarus, or if it were possible to be at the bottom at Challenger Deep, guess what? God's love would be right there with you. God is sovereign over space. Nor powers. This word is used to describe miracles and figuratively of persons in positions of authority and often in the spirit realm. No power, no authority, no rule on earth, no power, no authority or rule in the spirit realm can break or thwart God's love for us. And he concludes the list with, nor anything else in all creation. This is one giant catch-all phrase, right? To emphasize that there's no loopholes. The only thing not created is the Trinity itself. Therefore, nothing, no created thing, which is everything, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The list is poetic. It's beautiful. The list is extreme. And the list is exhaustive and comprehensive. Because, beloved, the point is clear. The argument is one. The conclusion is proved. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. What's the reason we know that we can't be separated from God? It's Christ. It's all about him. It's all because of him. It is being in him that makes God's love for us utterly inseparable. What a promise. What great assurance. What amazing truth. So a question for you today. Are you in him? The promise of God's supreme love is only for those who are in Christ. Perhaps today, right now, is your time to receive the greatest gift of love ever given. For God loves you. And he gave his only son for you. But if you would believe in him, you will never perish, but have everlasting life. And you will know the love of God. Well, Christian, maybe you need to proclaim anew to yourself. Maybe you need to talk to yourself. You need to, to, to encourage yourself. You need to say, I am sure. I am convinced. I know 
both now and always, that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Say it and pray it and know it and live it because it's true. No condemnation, no separation. What magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. Let's pray together. Father, now I stand before you humbled by the power and the beauty of your word. We, we are before you struck by the truth, the illumined truth of your word, of your love for us in Jesus Christ. All these things array against us. All these separators try to come to no avail. No, in you, and because of you, we are more than conquerors. Lord, thanks is, a, is nowhere near enough. Praise and worship is nowhere near enough. A life of devotion to this God of love is nowhere near enough. We shall spend eternity in wonder of your love. So I pray today for us, to be encouraged, to be strengthened. If you're struggling here today, if you're a Christian here today, and the circumstances of life have got you down, look over them. Look through them. And in the midst of them, see God's love. If you're not a believer today, God loves you. It's true. And so, Lord, we come to you now, asking you to do your work in us. With a love that cannot cease, I am his, and he is mine. In Jesus' name, amen.